Good morning, chiropractic students. If you're like me, you're on the way to campus right now. If you're also like me, you're freaking out because you haven't started studying for part two of boards. Well, no doubt, we're all in the same boat together. But hopefully this is gonna help you out. If you're like me, you're commuting a lot to school and you're driving to every which way corner of Southern California to get those PPR hours in. This is gonna be some recordings of the Irene Gold review. Just gonna be kind of reading it. That way you can study, drive, or time effective. So hopefully you'll have some fun listening to this as we all study together. And I apologize, one, for my voice, two, for my pronunciation, and uh, three, for my taste in music, because everybody wants to rule the world. Okay, that was just a little introduction. Now we're gonna jump right into it. So what I'm gonna be reviewing is the Irene Gold uh, Specialist in Chiropractic Edition for over 35 years, part two slash three of National Board Review. So I'm basically just kinda gonna go straight into it, reading it from the book itself. If you don't have the book on PDF, let me know, but hopefully everyone has it by now. And some of the stuff is like really obvious, so I'm gonna skip over that for my sake because no one wants to hear me talk about history for 10 minutes straight. So if you don't understand it, look it up on your own. Okay, first section, history. Health history includes the following, chief complaint, past health history, personal and social history, review of systems. Those are the top five, we need to know them. Chief complaint, hope you know that. Uh, present illness, this is going to be the O-P-Q-R-S-T, onset, palliative slash provocative, quality of pain, radiation, site slash severity, timing. Past health history, if they had any serious injuries, uh, illnesses, hospitalizations, surgeries, medications, allergies. Family health history, you want to know the big five if they've had any cardiovascular disease, diabetes, stroke, cancer, I would also say hypertension as well, within the family. Social slash personal history, we have marital status, occupation, diet, exercise, bowel slash urinary, sleep, alcohol, tobacco, drug, and stress. Um, they have this thing called a CAGE questionnaire. Um, and this CAGE questionnaire has to do with alcoholism. So if you suspect someone is an alcoholic, but maybe they're not admitting it, then you would have them do the CAGE questions. And CAGE is an acronym standing for C, cutting down. Have you ever felt the need to cut down on your drinking? A, for annoyed by others' criticism. Have you ever felt annoyed by criticism of your drinking? G, for guilty feelings. Have you ever felt guilty about your drinking? And E, eye openers. Have you ever felt the need for a morning eye opener? Well, I feel it this morning, so maybe I am. That's a joke aside. I don't, I'm not an alcoholic. Okay, and then the final part of the history is review of systems, 
We should all know that. Moving on, vital signs. These are always something that hopefully are, are ingrained in our head by now, but it's always good to review. So height and weight, you do them yourself. Temperature, normal temperatures. If it's oral, it's 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Rectal and tympanic are 99.6. Axillary is 97.6. And the ranges, normal ranges are going to be from 96 to 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 to 37.5 degrees Celsius. I doubt they'll ask the Celsius, so know the Fahrenheit. Pulses, our normal ranges for adults is going to be 60 to 100. A newborn is going to be 120 to 160. An elderly is 70 to 80. Adults, we should know, newborns, they're smaller, they're faster heartbeats, and then elderly, they have a lower metabolism, um, so it's going to be a slower heart rate. So that should make sense. Respiratory values, again, similar to how pulses are going to be increased for newborns. The newborn respiratory values are going to be 44, where an adult is 14 to 18, but I've seen values anywhere from 12 to 20 within that range. And blood pressure, normal blood pressure should be first systolic, it should be 90 to 120, diastolic 60 to 80. Values increase in the elderly. Then we have the different stages of hypertension. So, you know, it progresses once we get to the 129 to 139, that's the prehypertensive and then so on and so forth. Don't quote me on that value. I was just going off the top of my head. But once you definitely reach hypertension, it's 140 over 90. Hypotension, decrease in blood pressure, is 90 over 60. Check for oscillatory gap, may seen in, be seen in hypertensives, by taking a palpatory systolic reading. The oscillatory gap is the loss and reappearance of the pulsatile sound while listening with the stethoscope's cuff deflation. Korkakoff sounds, Korkakoff sounds. Um, I'm a big Harry Potter fan, so every time I hear the word Korkakoff, it makes me think of Kakaroff from Harry Potter. Fun fact about Sarah there. And these are low-pitched sounds produced by a turbulent flow, blood flow in arteries. A difference of 15 millimeters in systolic reading can indicate arterial occlusion, such as subclavian steel syndrome, on the side of the decreased value. Blood pressure's readings are 20% higher in the lower extremities. Makes sense. You have to go against gravity. Tests for vertebrobasilar artery insufficiency. The first one they have is Berlieu, probably French, again, Sorry, I can't pronounce these. Patient seated. Examiner instructs the patient to rotate the head maximally from side to side. Done slowly at first and then accelerated to patient tolerance. You basically ask the patient to shake their head no and then it gets faster and faster. The next one is called declines. The patient is supine. The examiner instructs the patient to rotate and extend the head off the table, then turn, then 
Turn to each side for 15 to 45 seconds. Doctor can lend minimal support. Um, it's kind of just basically maximal foraminal compression, but the patient is laying on the table with their head, inducing all of the gravity. Next is the hall pike. We've learned this one before. It's an enhanced declines. The patient is supine, head extended off the table. Examiner offers support for the skull, and the examiner brings the head into extension, rotation, and lateral flexion. So hall pike essentially is all passive. Then we have hautants. The patient is seated, arms are extended forward to shoulder level with the hands supinated. Maintain the position for a few seconds. Patient then closes the eyes, rotates, and hyperextends the neck to one side. Repeat to the opposite side. Next we have Underberg. Patient stands with one eye with eyes open, excuse me, arms at the side, feet close together. Patient closes eyes, extends arms, and supinates hands. Then the patient extends and rotates the head to one side. Then this position, then in this position, patient is instructed to march in place. So essentially, the underberg is the same thing as the hatant, except you're standing and you ask them to march and the patients are but both of the patient's eyes are closed. So it's kind of like a wrong, Rombergs, I want to say. Um, okay, that is all of that for vital signs and blood pressure. Now we're moving on to eyes. First things first, eyebrows. If they're scaly, gross, indicates seborrhea. Loss of the lateral one-third indicates myxedemia, and a lot of times we see myxedemia in people who have hypothyroidism. Although you could see it with hyper, but that's more of a hypo thing. Um, and then we have quantitative loss is normal with age. So elderly people are going to have less eyebrows than younger people. Except we get those like weird people who have really bushy eyebrows. Don't know how that happens. Must be something wrong. Okay, eye and pupil DDX. So what they have here is just kind of a list of definitions and uh, words to know, essentially. So this is a lot of stuff we learned in Dr. Bodette's class. So the first one is ptosis. Um, I just like to say it. It's one of my favorite words to say. Ptosis. There you go. And that is drooping of the eye seen with Horner's syndrome as we lose the sympathetic innervation. Also, meiosis, constriction of the pupil, and anhydrosis are seen with Horner's syndrome, those three. Cranial nerve 3 paralysis will also dilate the pupil. Myasthenia gravis can also cause ptosis as well. You have to uh, differentiate between Horner's and cranial nerve paralysis on the test. So... If it's just the ptosis, the drooping of the eyelid, then it's cranial nerve 3 paralysis. But if they also have the anhydrosis and meiosis, it's going to be Horner syndrome. And then again, myasthenia gravis is just an extra step that might happen. Exophthalmos is going to be lid lag slash failure to cover the eyeball seen with graves 
bilateral or a tumor unilateral. So if both of the eyelids, um, you can't close them because of their, this is like the crazy eyes ones, really big bulging eyes, then the patient probably has graves, which is hyperthyroidism. Or if it's unilateral, then they might have some sort of tumor affecting one side of the brain. The next one is ectropian. Ectropian, it's my final answer, is the lid is turned outward and is seen in the elderly. Entropian is the opposite and the lid is turned in and seen in the elderly as well. So ect meaning out, so the eyelid is turned out, and end, meaning in, so eyes turned in. Next is periorbital edema, swelling around the eyes, seen with allergies, myxedemia, and nephrotic syndrome. Next is a pleb, I'm so sorry, plebaritis, um, B, uh, B L E P H. That is the root for an eyelid. So, pleuritis is going to be inflammation of the eye seen with seborrhea, staph infection, and inflammatory process. Next is cataracts. We've seen these opacis, opacities seen in the lens that are commonly seen with diabetes and in the elderly. Also has an absent red light reflex because we have the shadowing over the lens. Corneal arcus, which is the grayish opaque ring around the eye of the cornea. This is seen in patients who have hypercholesterolemia. Um, and that's going to be in patients who are less than 50 years old, so early signs of that. Or if they're elderly, above 50, that's kind of normal. Don't confuse this one with the Kaiser fleshier ring, which is the copper ring, the kind of greenish copper color seen in Wilson's disease. So corneal arcus is going to be gray and opaque. Pterygium, which is a triangular thickening of the bulbar, bulbar conjunctiva that grows across the cornea and is brought on by dry eyes. Pateri is like, you know, the pterygoid, so it's probably pterygium. Excuse, that might be how you pronounce it. But it starts with a P, so it's P-T-E-R-Y, like the pterygoids, lateral medial pterygoids. So it's a thickening of the bulbar conjunctiva that grows across the cornea and is brought on by dry eyes. Sclera, um, it's just going to give you the color for each thing. White is normal. Yellow is going to be jaundice or beta carotinemia, which is when you have too much of vitamin A. If it's blue, then it's going to be autogenesis imperfecta. Conjunctiva, the pink stuff, that should normally be pink. If it's pale, then it's going to be anemia. And if it's bright red, it's infection. Hordolium, aka a sty, is an infection of the sebaceous glands causing a pimple or boil on the eyelid. Uh, chalazion. Chalazion is another uh, word for one of the tear ducts. 
So it's an infection of the meibomian gland causing a nodule with points inside of the lid. Again, sorry about the pronunciation. Pinquelicula? Pinquelicula. I'm so sorry. As a yellowish, I'll spell it out for you. It's P-I-N-Q-U-E-C-U-L-A. A yellowish triangular nodule in the bulbar conjunctiva that is harmless and indicates aging. So probably not going to be asked that. Uh, Xanelsalma is fatty plaques on the nasal surface of the eyelids that is normal or indicates hypercholesterolemia. Argyle Robinson, we've seen this one before. Bilaterally small and irregular pupils that accommodate but do not react to light. Seen with syphilis. So again, we'll probably talk about this in a little bit, but accommodation is when the eyes will kind of go cross-eyed to accommodate for something that's near versus far to your vision, but does not react to light is when you shine the light into them. So the accommodation is you're going to have that constriction because something is closer to you, but reaction to light, again, is just shining the light. So Argyle Robinson can accommodate, but does not react to light. Next is internal ophthalmalgia which is dilated pupil with ptosis and lateral deviation. Does not react to light or accommodation. And this person has multiple sclerosis. So the internal ophthalmolopia, um, that's going to be, I think of like a chameleon, you know, how a chameleon can, their eyes goes everywhere. So it's basically the opposite of cross-eyed. Their eyes are laterally deviating. Next is mydrasis, dilated and fixed pupils seen with anticholinergic drugs, aka atropine, mushrooms, or death. Hmm. Then we have meiosis, which is fixed and constricted pupils that react to light and accommodate. Seen with severe brain damage, uh, pilocarpine medications, and narcotic use. Then we have ansicoria. Ansicoria is pupils of unequal size. Audis or ADs pupil is sluggish pupillary reaction to light that is unilateral and caused by a parasympathetic lesion of the cranial nerve 3. So Audis pupil can sometimes be mixed up with what I said earlier, which was the Argyle Robinson. Um, as well as the ansicoria, but the Audis pupil is going to be something wrong with the the Westphalanger nucleus, and that's where the cranial nerve 3 comes in, and it's one of the ganglions that it synapses in. Next is Arroyo sign, is a sluggish pupillary reaction due to hypoadrenalism, aka Addison's disease. Next, Horner syndrome. We know this one. Meiosis, excuse me, yeah, meiosis, ptosis, and anhydrosis. Glaucoma, increased intracranial pressure causing cupping of the optic disc. The disc to cup ratio, sorry, cup to disc ratio is going to be greater than 
one to two. Patient will notice blurring of their vision, especially in the peripheral fields, as well as rings around the lights. Um, crescent sign will be present upon tangential lighting of the cornea. So glaucoma, we also have the open and like the acute glaucomas. The acute one is the one that's like very sudden and it's painful. And again, the cupping of the disc ratio, that's off. So that's important. Papilledema, aka choked disc, is swelling of the optic disc due to increased intracranial pressure. No visual loss. Visual loss is with optic neuritis. May be seen with a brain tumor or brain hemorrhaging. Retinal detachment is painless. Sudden onset of blindness described as curtains closing over vision, flashing lights, and floaters. Macular degeneration is the most common reason for blindness in the elderly. Central loss of vision, macular drusen bodies, is an early sign of macular degeneration, and that's the yellow spots under the retina. Hypersensitive retinopathy, damage to the retinal vessels slash background, will show these signs. Copper wire deformity, silver wire deformity, AV nicking, flame and splinter hemorrhages, cotton wool, soft exudates. I am not too sure what the copper wire deformity and silver wire deformity is, but it sounds very similar to uh, stuff we already learned for like diabetic uh, neuropathy. And that's the next one, diabetic retinopathy. I said neuropathy earlier, I'm sorry, retinopathy. Diabetic retinopathy affects the veins more than the arteries and persists with microaneurysms, hard exudates, and neovascularization. We have iritis, which is inflammation of the iris, aka the color portion, and that is seen with ankylosis spondylitis. Um, couple more on eye, and then we probably will take a quick little pause. So we have vision, different types of vision. M-metropia, E-M-M, is normal vision. Myopia is nearsighted. Hyperopia is farsighted. And presbyopia is loss of lens elasticity due to aging. So a couple of tricks to memorize that. For me, I have horrible vision and I am nearsighted. So myopia, I think of my vision sucks. So I'm nearsighted. And then the other one's farsighted. Pres, uh, that is the prefix for like elderly. So presbyopia, opia being the eye. We'll see presbycusis, that's decreased uh, hearing due to age. So that pres is meaning like elderly people. Lastly, we have the different types of cranial nerve testings. So we have the direct light reflex. That's going to test cranial nerves 2 and 3. Consensual light reflex tests cranial nerve 3. Accommodation tests cranial nerves 2 and 3. Visual acuity tested with the Snellen chart, and that's for cranial nerve 2. Cardinal fields of gaze is going to be 
cranial nerve three, four, and six. And if you guys remember, we have SO4LR6. So the superior oblique is controlled by the fourth cranial nerve, which is uh, the trochlear nerve. And then we have LR6. LR is for lateral rectus, and that's controlled by cranial nerve 6, which is abducens. The rest are controlled by cranial nerve 3. And that ends the eye section. Alrighty, we just finished up eye. I'm just going to continue to cover ear, nose, mouth and throat, and then head of the section. Um, and then that's about up to page six. And then there's a nice, beautiful chart that kind of summarizes everything that's kind of going on. And we'll probably call it quits for that day. Which for today, I should say. I'm trying to make these doable, not like boring, super hour long. Okay, ear. So abnormal findings in the ear. We have tinnitus, which is the presence of ringing in the ears. Presbycusis, again, we see that prefix pres meaning old. So that's gonna be sensory neural hearing loss that occurs in people as they age. And they may be affected by genetic or acquired factors. So I think the big with this one is it's sensory neural. It's not gonna be some sort of uh, blockage bone connection or something like that it's just decrease in the nerves acute otitis externa infection of the outer ear because this condition is often associated with swimming especially if the water is contaminated it is frequently referred to as swimmer's ear the individual will experience inflammation and pain of the outer ear tugging on the pina will be painful and the pina is like that inner part of the ear the close part, I should say. Horrible description. <laughs> Acute uh, mastoiditis is bacterial infection of the mastoid process. Presents clinically with the same signs and symptoms of acute otitis media with the addition of inflammation and palpatory tenderness over the mastoid. Hearing loss is commonly associated as well. Purulent otitis media, a.k.a. bacterial otitis media, a bacterial or viral infection in the middle ear. The tympanic membrane presents with a red appearance, dilated blood vessels, and bulging. Um, purulent, or like superative, that means like pus forming, and that's always usually going to be associated with bacterial. It's very rare to have a virus that is pus forming. Serous otitis media is an, infus an effusion in the middle ear resulting from incomplete resolution of acute otitis media or obstruction of the eustachian tube. This condition is usually chronic and the fluid is amber with bubbles. Gross. Vertigo, an abnormal sensation of rotary movement associated with difficulty in balance, gait, and navigation of the environment. Meniere's disease is a disorder characterized excuse me, by recurrent prostraining vertigo, sensory hearing loss, tinnitus, and a feeling of fullness in the ears. So again, the big one here is the feeling of fullness in the ears, 
and it's going to be bilateral, Meniere's disease. Benign uh, paroxysmal positional vertigo, vertigo, aka BPPV. This is the most common type of vertigo. It is a brief episode of vertigo brought on by a chance change of head position. This is diagnosed by having the patient perform the Dix-Hallpike maneuver. The patient rapidly moves from sitting to supine with his head turned 45 degrees to the left and waits 30 seconds. Repeat on the right side. If nystagmus is seen, then it's positive. Positiveness is uh, if you see nystagmus, nausea, or the patient has vertigo. Again, that's benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Acoustic neuroma is a benign tumor of cranial nerve 8, aka called a schwannoma. Hearing loss, tinnitus, and vertigo in presence of tumor on a CT or MRI. And again, these are usually unilateral. Eustachian tube block, retraction of the, sim the tympanic membrane. And that's all it says. Okay, next is a chart explaining the difference between Webster, not Webster, sorry, Weber and Renee test. So the first is all normal. So if we have normal hearing and we do Weber, we should have equal sounds bilaterally. If we have normal hearing and we hear Renee's, we do Renee's test, our air conduction should be greater than our bone conduction. That should be normal. Now, if we have conduction hearing loss and we perform Weber's, then we're going to have lateralization to the bad ear. So if you have something that's blocking your ear conduction, it's going to sound louder in that bad ear. But in Renee's test, we're going to have air conduction is less than bone conduction or air conduction is the same as bone conduction. Finally, for sensory neural hearing loss, for Webster's, it's going to lateralize to the good ear. Whereas in Renee's test, uh, the air conduction is still greater than the bone conduction with less time in the bad ear. So the air conduction is still going to be greater, but let's say I, I have it in my left ear. My left air conduction is going to be less than my right. So that's how you can tell. Okay, and that's all they have on ears. Moving on to the nose. Just a couple for the nose. The first one is viral rhinitis. Nasal mucosal appears red and swollen with a clear runny nose. Allergic rhinitis. rhinitis. Nasal mucus appears pale or blue and boggy, AKA my nose, cause I sneeze all the time. Atropic rhinitis is thinning of the nasal mucosa with sclerosis, crest formation, and foul odor. Polyps typically occur as a consequence of chronic inflammation of the nasal mucosa. Now we have mouth and throat. The first one, angular stomitis, aka chelosis, chelosis, and that are the red sores at the corner of the mouth that are referred to as the angular chelitis slash stomitis. It can be caused by a vitamin B2 
riboflavin deficiency. On the tongue, we have candidiasis, aka thrush, is a thick white fungal patches that are easily scraped off. I think thrush rhymes with brush and you can brush off candidiasis. Whereas leukoplakia is a precancerous lesion of white patches that are adherent to the surface and are not easily removed. So leukoplakia does not rhyme with brush, therefore I can't brush it off. Atrophic glossitis is a deficiency of B vitamins or iron that causes the tongue to appear smooth and glossy. So the tongue just gets really big and beefy essentially and swollen. Fissured tongue, aka scrotal tongue, is deep furrows on the surface of the tongue and that is considered a normal variant. Head and neck, we have giganticism, excessive production of growth hormone prior to skeletal maturation. No idea why it's in the head and neck, maybe they have a big head. <laughs> but then we have acromegaly, which is excessive production of growth hormone beginning in middle age, results in an abnormal growth in the hands, feet, and facial bones. Hyperthyroidism, most commonly caused by Graves' disease, which is autoimmune. Thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH, production is decreased and the thyroid hormones, thyrox, excuse me, uh, T3 and thyroxine, T4, are produced in excess. The opposite of that is hypothyroidism, aka myxedemia. Hashimoto's thyroiditis is the most commonly seen in the United States. Congenital hypothyroid is called creatinism and causes a diminished physical and mental capacity. And then there's a small chart showing the difference between hyperthyroidism and hypo signs and symptoms. So to start hyperthyroidism, we're going to have weight loss with increased appetite, irritable and nervous, intolerance to heat, moist skin and fine hair, exophthalmus, possible neck swelling due to goiter, and we're going to have high T3 and T4, but low TSH. And if the patient has Graves' disease, then we're also going to have the presence of uh, the TSI, the, the um, thyroid-stimulating antibodies. I believe that's what it's called. Next is hypothyroidism. The patient is going to present with weight gain and decreased appetite, depression, weakness, fatigue, intolerance to cold, coarse, dry hair and skin, periorbital edema, macroglossia, and loss of lateral one-third of the eyebrows. The eyebrows one is big. Then we have decreased T3 and T4, but increased TSH. All right, guys, that wraps it up for this first ever, I guess, podcast or review of part two national boards. I ended on page seven. There's a big chart about headaches. Um, hopefully we know all of them by now. It's just, you know, like classic migraine, hypertension, cluster, tension, cervical, sinus, hemorrhaging, brain tumor, 
Um, it's too complicated for me to say, so you're just going to have to look that one over. Uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this. If not, oh well, it's free and maybe you learned something. So I hope you guys have a great rest of the day. Good luck in class or clinic or whatever you're doing. And I will talk to you guys tomorrow.